Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have a great guest in store for you all. I speak with Dr. Madeline Odin. She's an assistant professor of bioengineering at Tufts University, and she takes us through her career journey from undergrad at McGill to getting a master's and going on to get her PhD in neuroscience. She then shifted gears and studied cancer in her postdoc at MIT, and then went down the very challenging and competitive path of pursuing a faculty position. And she is, of course, successful in that journey and has been mentoring others and leading science in this incredible niche environment of cancer and neuroscience, really merging those two fields that she worked on. She also became a mom at some point during that busy uh, career, and her daughter was diagnosed with a rare form of epilepsy caused by a mutation in the SCN8 gene. So we talk about her discovery of her daughter's diagnosis and how that's shifted her role as a scientist and patient advocate and what some of the resources have been for her and her husband as they go down this uh, path of drug development for their daughter. It's a really inspiring conversation and I hope that you take something away from Madeline's experience and her journey to becoming a professor. Thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Madeline Odin. She's an assistant professor in biomedical engineering at Tufts University, and I'm excited to talk about her career journey and her life as a parent today. So welcome to Lady Scientist Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out at the beginning, the very beginning for you as a scientist. What led you to pursue a career in science? I always uh, liked the science fields. Um, my dad was really into math, so I did lots of really lots of math growing up. And uh, but then I really got interested in biology and chemistry and, and medicine and how the body worked. So I was watching ER at the time and loved that show and the medical um, profession and just kind of trying to help bodies and people get better and the science behind that. And so in high school, I uh, pursued science more actively and just really enjoyed biology and chemistry and, you know, thought I wanted to go into medicine at first. Um, and so, but, you know, at least as my undergrad focused really on that. So you had already kind of a supportive environment in high school. Did you have great science teachers or what kind of uh, school did you go to? So I, I grew up in, in Europe, in France. My mom is Canadian. My dad is French. And so I went to an international school. Um, so we did, I did have good science teachers. I mean, my, my family at home was not into science at all. I had no exposure to science careers or anything like that. So it was really you know, my own passion and interest in, in medicine and science. Um, but we did have a very strong science curriculum. And in, in France, you have to decide between either the more literary track, more economics track, or more science track when you get into high school. And so I picked that. And so we had intense, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, math. And so we did, we learned a lot. We did a lot of labs. And so in that sense, I got a lot of exposure uh, to uh, to that world. But that's really it. You know, I didn't 
really know what kind of careers I thought medicine was the only career that you could do. I didn't really know that you could become a scientist. So I didn't really have anyone to look up to or anyone to kind of, you know, see which way to go. It was really just for my own uh, passion. Did that change when you were in your undergraduate studies? And, and where did you end up going for undergrad? So I ended up going to Canada, to McGill University. I wanted to explore my Canadian heritage. And so I went there and McGill was, was great, but it's a huge school. So my classes were humongous. The smallest class I had as a senior was 60 people. And we always had rotating professors come in giving all these guest lectures. So while I learned a lot, um, I still then didn't really get a lot of research exposure. Um, we didn't really have advisors like I advise undergrads. Now, I really didn't know, again, that you could start working in a lab. Like I, I was clueless, I had no idea. Um, I had a passion for flying trapeze and did that during the summers, during my undergrad teaching flying trapeze. I just didn't know you could pursue research. But as a senior, uh, or as a, in, in undergrad, I, I started to learn more in, in my classes, reading papers, you know, learning more kind of about the lab and, and so while I thought I'd been wanting to go to medical school uh, and kind of was pursuing that more, um, I, you know, realized that the idea of discovery, understanding how things work, that was really exciting to me. And so I wanted to start doing research. And so by the by that point, um, you know, it was the end of undergrad. And so then I decided to do a master's to get research experience because I was told that if I wanted to do PhDs, I needed to have more experience. And I I had none. I really had done not, no research uh, apart from my classes. And so um, so I did that. So I went to do a master's to gain some research experience. And that's really where I fell in love with research and, you know, got the, that exposure finally to really what it is to be a scientist. So it took me a while to to get there. And I really didn't have anyone showing me the way. So, yeah, it took me a while. Jumping ahead a little bit, I'm so curious, I mean, because obviously you're a PI now and a mentor to many, many people, I imagine. What advice do you give people going through that transition themselves? Yeah, I think, I mean, the number of students that come in wanting to go to medical school as a freshman, because they think that that's really, you know, the main career that comes out of liking science to the ones that then as seniors actually going to medicine, you know, it's been interesting with my first crop of advisees. Initially, you know, 90% wanted to go to med school and now it's probably like 10%. So a lot of them have just discovered all the other careers that exist along the way. So I really encourage um, my advisees to get involved in research and to try uh, working in, in labs or do internships, especially over the summer. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to get involved during the semester, but obviously they're busy with classes so to really taking advantage of those summers to try different types of research, working in academia, working in industry, and trying different fields just to get that exposure to really figure out what you don't like and, and what you do really like. And I think that's really what helps the most to, you know, figure out uh, what, what you want to do next. So you had this master's under your belt. You had gotten some initial experience in the lab. You knew this was really what you were passionate about. Um, you go on to get a PhD from King's College of London studying neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you made the decision as far as program, where to study? You know, you've 
you've already had this international experience. Like, I, I'm so curious, like how, how that all played into your decision there. Yeah. So I ended up going back to the UK for my, for my master's and then stayed for my PhD. So when I was looking for master's programs, um, at that point I was kind of missing Europe, having grown up there and, and been in Canada for my undergrad, that was fun, but I thought, you know, it would be cool to go back to Europe. So that was more of a personal decision just to, you know, move and try something different. And so, um, so I did a master's there and then I ended up doing a PhD in the same lab that I did my master's, uh, research project in. So I got to work there and the advisor, you know, uh, we got along really well and he saw that I was really enthusiastic and really motivated. And so he offered me a spot. Um, and in the UK, it's more, it's changing a bit, but it's more usually direct admission into a lab. So I kind of knew I was going to that lab and into um, that program. And so stayed to do my PhD there studying neuroscience and the role of uh, endocannabinoid signaling in adult neurogenesis. For folks who aren't familiar with, you know, program selection, lab selection, can you explain a little bit about um, the differences as far as going into a program versus joining a specific lab and, and what that looks like for people who are trying to, to do a PhD? Yeah, so in, you know, you can either join a PhD program where the first year you might do rotations, and so work in, you know, three or four different labs for four to six weeks, depending on the program. So you kind of get exposure to different labs. And at the end of their first year, you decide which lab you want to join and commit to. Um, and so uh, the other way to do that is um, that you actually, you know, uh, apply to a school, but work to work, work with a specific uh, PI in a specific lab. So you are part of a larger program but you know coming in who you're gonna start working with, what projects you're gonna be working on. And so sometimes it can be field specific, like in biomedical engineering where I am, there's less rotations and more direct admissions, but there's still some, um, but in biology, it can be much more rotation based. So there's there's pros and cons to both systems. If you really know what you wanna do, it's nice to be able to just get started and not do the rotations, but if you're not quite sure, and then you, know, you can get exposure to different labs that you might not usually, uh, you know, think that you would be interested in, and that can maybe change your mind too. So there's definitely, yeah, advantages to both ways of doing it. Yeah. And I think that's often one of the things that can be a little bit confusing for students coming in. Um, and, and, you know, for my mentees, I like to remind them for particular programs in the States that they will have that time their first year, usually to do rotations and to work with a few different PIs and start to figure out what makes sense for them because it is a big commitment to then join a lab and be working for this person for several years and um, be be focused on that particular area of study. So I think yeah, it's absolutely. great to share, you know, those different experiences. Um, mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what your work was focused on in graduate school. So I was studying uh, adult neurogenesis. So for a long time, we thought that you know, once you were born, you had all the neurons that would be in your brain. Uh, but it turns out that even into adulthood, there are a few regions in the adult brain that continue to proliferate and generate new neurons. And so uh, we were studying this process and what these, you know, how do we get more of these neurons? What do they do? Where do they go? Um, and we were studying the role of the endocannabinoid system. So these are the, the receptors and proteins that cannabis acts on, but we have our own molecules within our, our bodies that uh, function um, 
and can activate the same receptors and are very important for maintaining brain function. And so we were studying the role of that uh, pathway in this process and trying to stimulate this production of neurons because the idea was that you know, if we could generate new neurons in the adult brain, they could repair ones that may have died due to an injury or a stroke. Um, and so that could obviously be attractive for various regenerative approaches. I imagine from a biological perspective, it's a bit of a delicate dance though too, because if there's too much neurogenesis that could maybe lead to cancer, am I saying that correctly? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's always a balance for sure. Interesting. And so you 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 finish your PhD and you go on to doing a postdoc in Frank Gertler's lab at MIT. Um, walk us through the decision to move to studying cancer and, and going to MIT now in Boston. You're really like traveling the globe <laughs> as far as your yeah. research. <laughs> Yeah, so I really, you know, liked studying the brain, um, and we were studying how these cells, uh, once they're generated, move to different regions of the brain. And so I got to learn how to do live imaging with microscopes, where we would watch cells for several hours and see in which direction they moved. Could we get them to move to the places that we would want to? So I really enjoyed that. But these regions of the brain that generate new cells, you know, they're very small. We still don't really know what impact they have. And the one region I was working on. Uh, was very prominent in mice because it is linked to a sense of smell, which the mice have a very strong sense of smell. But as humans, we don't really have a strong sense of smell anymore. And uh, so that region, we didn't really know, know what it did in the human brain. And so I just didn't feel like it was impactful enough. I didn't feel like what I was doing, you know, could benefit uh, people. I want to do something that had more of a direct clinical impact. And so when I was thinking of postdocs, um, I was looking around and I attended local meetings on uh, called the Cell Motility Club, which are uh, meetings of researchers that work on cell motility, so how cells move in different contexts. And I learned that cancer cells move when they're spreading, when they metastasize. And that's really a process that we don't understand well, that is, you know, very, um, that leads to patients dying. And so I decided I wanted to apply my knowledge and expertise of how neuronal cells move to cancer cells. So I started looking for labs that, you know, studied cancer cell migration and that also used a lot of imaging and microscopy um, live inside of tumors. That was the method that I wanted to, to learn how to do. So it was both based off my interest and also of like the topic, but also the methods that I wanted to learn. Wow. So there are a few labs that jumped out and yeah. And then I, so I applied to those and um, uh, yeah, I ended up joining uh, Frank Gertler's lab at MIT. Can you give us a picture of what, I mean, I've never done live tumor cell imaging before. So if you could just share what that is like, what's the kind of broad strokes protocol and um, what type of information are you able to capture? Yeah, so we can, we can basically have fluorescently labeled tumor cells. And that, so we generate tumors um, in different tissues. So we worked in breast cancer, so in the mammary glands. And you can anesthetize the mice once they have these tumors and you can expose the tumors by doing surgeries to remove the top of the skin and then put the tumor on a two photon microscope. Um, and uh, you can you know, keep the mice alive under anesthesia and then you uh, image the fluorescently labeled tumor cells in the tumor and you, you can see them moving and leaving the tumor. And so we can do different treatments either to the mouse or locally in the environment 
uh, and see if that makes them move more or less. And if you have more movements, you assume that you know more cells are leaving the tumor and metastasizing. So that's kind of what we want to stop. So, um, so yeah, that was a technique I was really uh, interested in learning and that not that many people do. And so I really, I loved being able to see the cells moving, see the, you know, uh, the biology live in front of me. And that was really fun. That is so interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious. I, you talked about stopping the metastases, stopping these cells from mobilizing and going to other parts of the body, which of course is this like crucial leap in cancer that causes, you know, the more extreme pathogenesis of the disease. Are there particular gene targets that you've found that you can then um, target drugs to, uh, to, to potentially um, stop metastasis? So yeah, it's, it's tricky because it's not a particular, it's not a single mutation or gene that's associated with metastasis. So it's often a combination of uh, changes in the environment that happen when there's a tumor that can then attract tumor cells more. And also them, these cells, you know, uh, you know, expressing several genes or activating several uh, pathways that can make them more responsive to these outside cues and more able to survive in these foreign environments. So there's definitely, uh, you know, some new drugs that are being tested and emerging targeting those specific pathways that are more associated with motility or trying to alter the local environment in such a way that, you know, um, it would be less attractive for, for the tumor cells. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely challenging. Interesting, really interesting work. So of course, you're you're now a PI at a university and, and this is a, you know, highly competitive landscape to go out and, and get these types of positions. What was it during your postdoc that um, gave you the conviction that you did want to look for a faculty position? And were there particular pieces you had in place, you know, grants or mentorship that you felt like, I'm, I'm ready to do this? I, I took my time as a postdoc. So in the end, I stayed six years. I didn't apply till my uh, fifth year. And so I, I really um, took my time to get comfortable in the cancer field, to publish papers, uh, I, I collaborated with a lot of people in my postdoc. I, so being at MIT, I got to work with a lot of engineers, which was not something I'd ever thought of doing, um, but they were there and I really took advantage of that. And so I got to apply lots of different engineering methods, like computational approaches, devices, uh, to studying cancer biology. And so I really developed kind of a different way of studying cancer, leveraging these different approaches and, and the environment at the Koch Institute where I was, was fantastic for that. And so, you know, I, I took my time and I really learned a lot and developed, you know, a broad skill set and, you know, papers to, to back that up. And so along the way, I, I definitely continued, you know, felt that academia was an option. I wasn't 100% committed. I wanted to see how, how things went. Um, I was fortunate to receive, to apply for funding and receive initially a, a DOD breast cancer fellowship when I first started, uh, which funded uh, my work. And that that was, you know, really gratifying to get funding. I, I applied to eight fellowships and it was the one last one I got. So it was not easy, but I, I persisted and I, and I got that. Um, and then, you know, along the way, I also mentored students and tried to see if that was some, you know, something that I really enjoyed. 
And, uh, and I really uh, did like that aspect too. So I tried to kind of gain practice in these different areas that I knew would be important to be a PI and see if I liked it. Um, and then um, I ended up um, applying for the K99 grant, which is the pathway to independence. And so that I, you know, put together what I would want my lab to work on. You know, I think sometimes there's a lot of trends going on in, in, in research and you think that you have to, you know, follow what everyone is doing. And, and that's not what I wanted to do. If I was going to start my lab, I wanted it to be on metastasis, on the tumor microenvironment, on the extracellular matrix, these things that I was really interested in, which, you know, are, it's not that they're not popular, that people think they're important, but they're not, you know, the, the trendiest thing at the time. And so, but I was like, I've, I'm going to start my lab. I want it to be on something I'm passionate about. And so I wrote my research proposal and I, I took the time to write it. I really put in a lot of effort to think about what I would want to do. And I submitted that and I, and I waited. And in the meantime, I actually got a job offer from a local biotech from uh, a faculty that I knew who was starting a company and, and wanted me to lead the biology. And I was really tempted because I really uh, looked up to her as a mentor and, you know, thought this could be super fun too. And I was pretty much ready to go there because I thought my grant would not get funded. And, you know, um, and then I got the score for my grant and it was really good and I knew I, it would get funded. And so I felt like, well, if the NCI, you know, is funding me and believes in me, then I, I should believe in myself too. And so I decided to turn down the job in biotech and to go out on the job market and, um, and that really gave me the confidence in addition to my publications and the experience that I had that, you know, I had a good skill set to, to start in academia and to apply for jobs. Wow. Incredible. It, it sounds like, you know, it was really 50-50 for a while there as far as industry or academia. It's really interesting to hear that. Um, can you talk about what advice your PI was giving you and maybe even your PhD advisor and, um, you know, just how that played into your thinking. Yeah, I had, I mean, I had great discussions um, with both of them. Um, I, you know, balancing, you know, whether to take it, to apply for positions in medical schools where, you know, you don't teach, you have, you know, this uh, different salary structure where you have to come up with more, more salary from grants versus being in a department where you do teach and, you know, you get more salary support um, and, you know, those discussions like that, uh, because when you work, you know, in, in biology, you can kind of end up in lots of different places. Um, also, I, I really like, you know, enjoyed engineering. And so I thought it could be fun to be in a biomedical engineering department as well. So I was applying to those. Um, that was a bit harder because, you know, I'm not a trained engineer. And so some departments were just not really interested. And so kind of navigating which one was a good fit. Um, and, you know, just, you know, applying to different places, you know, everyone always says you find the right fit. And that can be a little hard to, to describe, but really kind of taking advantage of the interviews and talking to people and just, you know, seeing what kind of questions they ask you. Um, you know, do you really feel like a good scientific vibe, you know, in that environment? And so, um, and so, you know, because I, I did kind of apply it later and I, I had published papers, I felt like I was really able to take the time when I was on the job market to, you know, research and, and, you know, be really ready when I went to places and have a lot of questions and, and just take the time to really think about where would be the right place for, for me and, and my research interests. And so my mentor really supported me in that and was always available to chat and, 
and, you know, helped me to make that decision. What was the interview process like for you? Um, did Were you giving chalk talks, like maybe just a few uh, highlights of what the process is like for anybody who is thinking about pursuing this uh, type of track? Yeah, there's, you know, intense applications up until usually, um, you know, October, November, depending on some places. And so, you know, that's really busy just submitting and, you know, tailoring a bit each application to for each school. And then there's a bit of a wait period and then interviews start. And usually they'll start in January, but mine actually started in, in December. So, and uh, some places will have one interview where they put in your seminar and a chalk talk where you present your research plans in the same day and some do it over two visits. So it depends. Um, mine were mostly two visits. So the first visit was just a seminar, meeting people, and then got invited back for a second visit where I, then I did the chalk talk and that was in the new year and, um, you know, met more faculty, started talking a bit more logistics, equipment, what do I need, you know, what space would be available. So, um, because there's also a lot of that aspect to it, you know, which is, um, you know, what do you need for your lab to be successful? Do they have the right, uh, core facilities and equipment to support you, um, and so there's also kind of that very logistical aspect that is important. And so you kind of have to weigh all those factors. Obviously, there's location where you want to live, you know, some places where they're expensive versus salary. Then, you know, there's the community, there's the resources. Um, so there's just a lot of factors that go into it into, you know, making uh, that that decision. So it's a very long process, although mine ended in March. So it was a little earlier, like I said, all the places I ended up interviewing at were on top of everything and starting interviews very quickly. Uh, sometimes it can keep going till April, May. So it's, yeah, it's a long process. It's very busy and lots of traveling. And so I was lucky it was pre-pandemic and I got to go everywhere, which I mean, I love because some places I had never been. So that was important to see if I wanted to live there or not. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to really take the time because it, it's a huge decision. You're committing to being there potentially for your entire, you know, career. And so you want to make sure that you, you know, spend the time and, and make a good decision for yourself. Yeah. Wow. Well, I really, it's so impressive. Um, your, your career path, um, and, and, and hopefully your insights will help inspire others and, and make them feel, uh, like they can put the pieces together and, and go down that path if that's what they're interested in. Um, so obviously becoming a PI is a lot. I think from some of the other folks I've spoken to, um, often those first few years of running your own lab can be um, very challenging, isolating sometimes as you start to form this new community at a new university. Um, and figuring out, you know, what it's going to take to run a successful lab. Um, I'd love for you to actually just share a few highlights um, for yourself over these last few years and um, either research or, you know, mentoring highlights um, to help inspire others. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a whole kind of new journey and you, and you know, you go from being a postdoc running experiments to the next day, just running everything and you're, you're the boss, you know? And so, um, you know, I think 
definitely, you know, hiring the first people in my lab, you're like, you know, first you're like, oh my gosh, you want to work with me? This is, <laughs> this is so exciting. And, uh, you know, getting everything set up to run some of the first key experiments in your lab. Those are just so exciting moments. Um, and, and, you know, research-wise, uh, I think having your first lab paper where you're the senior author, that's all research from your lab, it's just so exciting. And putting that out there and, uh, you know, seeing people actually read it. So um, we, we published two papers, our first two papers in, in 2020, and, you know, they've been downloaded almost 4,000 times each, which is crazy. And it's so exciting and, and you know, validating and um, you know, I think having uh, people comment positively uh, after you put in all this time and, and these are your ideas that you're putting out there, um, that's just really exciting. Um, I think, you know, getting grants is obviously a huge part of becoming a faculty and it's very stressful because there are so many rejections. And I still remember the first grant that we got and it was early in the morning we got the email and and no one was at work i was in the hallway i'm like i need to tell someone and calling my husband he's not responding i'm in my lab no one's there <laughs> i'm like i just need to yell this that i we got a grant and that's also just very really, really exciting to have um that validation you know that you know with your your ideas that you can get funding because um you know we had we, we've been lucky, but I've, I've written a lot of grants, gotten a lot of rejections that are really, really hurt, you know, really things, you know, attacking you, your science. And so, you know, that's just really hard. So you really have to celebrate all the wins. And I think that's something that I really do a lot with the members of my lab. You know, we always celebrate, uh, you know, passing uh, PhD quals, you know, uh, birthdays, you know, obviously papers and grants. Um and I think that's so important because there, there are lots of tough times and rejections in science. And so learning to deal with that is hard and celebrating all the wins. Um, I've been lucky. I've had some amazing people in the lab. You know, this past year, I had three PhD students graduate, which, you know, is, is awesome to, to see them, you know, to have had them in the lab. And when they just started and, and grow to be, you know, mature, uh, independent scientists and move on to their different um, careers uh, has been really, really, um, you know, exciting for me to to see that. And, um, and so, you know, all these people that have been part of this story of the lab, um, you know, are all uh, important to me. And I love watching them, you know, going on in their careers. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I want to shift the conversation a little bit. Uh, somewhere along this very uh, industrious path, um, very exciting career, you became a mom. And um, just for some personal backstory, I actually gave birth to my daughter six months ago. So she's six months old and I've been going through this transition myself of going from, uh, you know, having a life that's focused on my work and and my passion to now having um, this wonderful daughter in my life and, and getting to um, learn about being a mom and, and having that be a big part of my life too. So I'd love to um, hear how, you know, having your daughter changed your relationship with your career and, and kind of your, your life. Yeah. So um, I, 
was pregnant during the pandemic. So it was kind of a weird time to be pregnant because no one saw me at work or pregnant or, you know, we were all working from home. So uh, it didn't seem as real in, in the work world, you know, because we were all working from home. But uh, my daughter was born in March 2021. And, um, you know, it's definitely, you know, when you're on maternity leave and you're running your labs, like you can't really disconnect completely because, um, you know, you're the one running your lab and I wanted to, but, you know, we had papers to submit. We had things going on. We had been already delayed with a pandemic. So uh, I pretty quickly had to learn how to balance, uh, you know, being a mom and taking the time to do that, but, you know, also um, balance having the lab and running a lab because again, the lab doesn't stop. And, you know, I took the time that I needed, but I also, uh, you know, was excited to do some science too, because when you switch from being like a full-time scientist to full-time mom, it's, it's really weird because it's not what you're used to. And you kind of, uh, so it was nice uh, also here and there to be able to, you know, stay involved with my lab uh, during the first, during my maternity leave to, you know, not completely lose kind of the, the life that I had. But, um, and so initially, you know, it was pretty good. She was, had an easy delivery and she was a chill baby. So life was pretty smooth, but then at three months old, she started having seizures and um, they were little seizures, but we noticed them and thought they looked weird. And we sent, we took a video and sent it to our pediatrician and she uh, told us to go to the emergency room at Boston Children's. And so we went there and she was diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, but we got the seizures under control. So we didn't think we were like, oh, it's just a fluke. Um, we were trying to find a reason for why this had happened. We'd actually just started a reflux medicine and we thought, and we were looking up and there were some papers suggesting that it could like some obscure papers, like we were trying to find a, a source of reason. Um, and so, you know, we were okay. But when we were at Boston Children's, they said, you know, we can send for genetic testing for seizures. And at the time I was like, okay, there's nothing wrong with my child. Like, but you know, if you want to go, you know, and do that, sure, why not? Like, it's always good to get information. So they sent it out and five weeks later, they called us and said, your daughter has two mutations in this SCN88 uh, sodium channel gene. Um, and then, you know, uh, our whole life's changed. And so, um, you know, what initially was kind of very smooth sailing motherhood, like things are going really well. I was you know, really felt like I was managing. I, like I said, I had this great maternity leave. I was still able to do some work. I, she was a good sleeper, you know, life, life was good. I was managing this whole mom, baby life. Um, and then everything changed. Wow. Wow. Um, so I'm curious what happened next because I think many parents who are going through this experience of um, having a child with a, a rare illness or, or genetic mutation do not have the scientific background that you have. Um, and I know that your husband is also a researcher as well. So I'm curious what, you know, what were the next steps for you? Like, what are we going to do about this? Um, you know, how are we going to um, move forward with looking for therapeutic options or, you know, um, giving her a, you know, high quality life? 
Yeah. So as soon as we got uh, the diagnosis, um, thankfully, actually, the the fellow, normally they, they wait for a genetic counselor to tell you, but um, we were hounding him and, you know, he knew we were scientists. So he gave us the mutations. And then, of course, we went to PubMed and we started looking at papers, uh, the gene, you know, where the mutations were. And, you know, initially it was it was a grim, you know, it was a, it was a really tough day because mutations in this gene, there's about now there's about 800 in the world. Um, there's a range of phenotypes, you know, associated with mutations in this gene, but it can go from, you know, very severe seizures, um, and then, and then also very halted development. So it's not just the seizures, but it's also, you know, um, not developing in terms of, you know, having any muscle control, um, walking, talking, communicating, all these things. And so again, there's a huge spectrum of, of kind of these different mutations and what, uh, phenotypes uh, the children end up having and how they evolve. And so, you know, it's it's a huge range. Now, the thing that was, you know, really um, that we were lucky was that this gene has actually been studied for a long time. So it was discovered in the 1990s by a researcher in Michigan, and she had found it in mice and had, you know, was hypothesized that it could be associated with epilepsy activity because it was such an important regulator of neuronal activity. And then it wasn't until 2012 when actually another scientist parent, um, Michael Hammer, his daughter had seizures unexplained and he did whole genome on his entire family and himself and found that his daughter had a mutation in, in the SCN8A gene. And he you know, connected with this researcher in Michigan and they started working together. And so, um, you know, there's such, we were lucky that our, our gene, you know, has such a rich history of scientists working on it. And there's mouse models and antibodies and, and a lot of resources and a patient registry. And so, and so, you know, right away, we were able to read a lot of papers, we were able to connect, you know, with all these researchers, who really welcomed us in and, you know, shared lots of information, predictions on what her mutation would do, um, connecting us to people who could test the function of her mutation so that we could really understand the biology behind, you know, her sodium channel dysfunction. Um, and so, uh, so between that community and then our expertise, because, you know, it turns out that I had started working on the role of ion channels in cancer several years before and interested in how the electrical properties of tumor cells can, can shift and so I had done work on potassium channels, mainly a little bit sodium channels. And so I was kind of, you know, familiar a little bit with this space. I was on my PhD in neuroscience. So this wasn't completely foreign. And then lastly, um, after some digging, my, my husband found that her mutation was in this alternatively spliced exon. So this region of the RNA of which there are different versions of the, of the protein. And he, you know, figured that out right away. And there's a lot of interesting biology associated with that. And, and he's been working on splicing for 20 years. So it was just like between the knowledge of the community, like my expertise, um, my husband's expertise, and then lastly, the fact that Tufts, where I am, has a huge epilepsy community with researchers who are very strong in the neuroscience department that I was able to connect with right away. Um, you know, we like sucked all this knowledge in and was just have been just learning and, and, um, you know, could really kind of within a few months really get a handle on, you know, where we were at, what we needed to know, what we needed to do, and and kind of get 
to figure out what options were going. So, you know, it's definitely a surreal experience to have this much, you know, like, you know, uh, this coincidence of like where her mutation was and the expertise that we have. And, um, but, um, you know, and I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm, I don't believe in, you know, I'm very fact-based, but I feel like there's some kind of fate in this in some way. And that, you know, we were meant to come and, and then contribute to, to this field. Um, wow. So, yeah, I think we experienced this really from the science side and it was very, you know, very, very different, but, um, yeah. Well, I, I find it so heartwarming too. just, you know, the access you had to, um, you know, a clinician who is willing to do the genetic sequencing right away and give you the information. Like, I feel like that's also kind of a rare, um, occurrence, um, for a lot of patients who often have to kind of, uh, battle to get that information to argue to their insurance companies um and you know are often waiting a long time for that ultimate uh genetic diagnosis for symptoms that they've uh, been aware of for quite some time so um and it's so i think also wonderful that you had this community that you stepped into that already had all of this you know expertise and experience um with the hammer family and like one of the things i find really inspiring about patient communities is how much research has been done for a lot of these illnesses and like how that's really driven forward entire fields like if you look at huntington's disease for instance that was like how molecular biology became connected to clinical diagnosis um and founded you know this kind of entire space in a way um, so I want to fast forward because you posted recently that you traveled to a conference, AES, and uh, presented your very first epilepsy talk. So obviously, you know, with this information in hand, you have now started studying epilepsy. Um, can you talk about that shift? You know, what aspects of the biology um, you're trying to understand further with your research and maybe just a few highlights from the conference? Yeah, no, I, I really pretty quickly decided that I, I, I maybe did want to contribute. Um, and I was also inspired uh, on Rare Disease Day in February this year, there was a post from another academic uh, at Penn, um, who talked about his daughter and rare disease. And, and so then I looked him up, and uh, he had also started uh, as an assistant professor, uh, uh, research on his daughter's disease. And I was able to meet with him a few weeks later. And, uh, you know, he kind of can showed me and convinced me that I could do this, <laughs> that I, you know, could, could start this new area in my lab. Um, because, you know, as an assistant professor, you're still establishing yourself. And, you know, my lab was doing well at that time. We published papers, we got grants. So I felt like I was on solid ground, at least in that sense, to get started. But, you know, it's, it, it was intimidating. And so between that and then my collaborator at Tufts, um, I was able to, uh, you know, really want to start doing that. So, um, so I was able to recruit a PhD student who started um, working in my lab in June on this project. Um, and so we're studying um, this, the role of this splicing regulation of SCN8A. So there are two versions of SCN8A, this gene, an adult version and a neonatal version, and it switches over time. 
So you have a neonatal version that's more abundant at first, and then it goes to an adult version. Um, and so my daughter's mutation is in this part that governs the neonatal version, but there's about 35 other patients that have mutations in this region as well. And so um, we are, you know, trying to switch to the adult version to remove the mutation completely. Um, and so, um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot we don't understand about how this switch happens, you know, how is it regulated? What does it do? So we're doing lots of work on that. Um, and, you know, my husband is collaborating a, and an advisor as well. So it's really a family project. And, um, and then we've also uh, started generating a mouse model with Margot's mutation. Uh, so with a mutation in this neonatal version, so that we can study the effect that that has. And if we switch it in the mouse, what happens? Um, so that mouse will be ready in a few months. And uh, the technology we're using are ASOs, antisense oligonucleotides, which you know have become a really popular and really cool tool to manipulate gene expression. Um, and this has been pioneered really by the company um, Ionis. And um, and so uh, you know, thankfully, because my husband works in the RNA world, we know lots of people in that community as well who have given us a lot of advice and. Uh, you know, we've had so many friends of ours, scientists who have stepped up to do experiments in their own labs too, to help us like generating iPS cells for Margot's fibroblasts to study make neurons, things like that. And so, you know, it's been really amazing to have, you know, all these other scientists get involved in this research as well, that we're not doing this before and getting involved in SCNA day research. Um, and so, so yeah, so we are Working on that, and we are also um, we also applied for the Enlorum Foundation for Margot, which is a foundation that um, kind of spun out of Ionis to generate N of one ASO treatments for genetic disorders for nano rare patients, so diseases where there's only you know that one or less than ten patients with that mutation. And so Margot uh, was accepted into that, so they're also generating ASOs um, to test. On the human side, so in my lab, we're kind of more focused on the mouse side and understanding the biology and and the functional effects of these changes, and then they're developing um, treatments there. And so our clinician is involved in that, and he's been awesome too. From our first meeting, when I knew we were meeting with him after her diagnosis, I had already looked up a bunch of his papers <laughs> and came to our first meeting, and he was like, "Yeah, we recently did a study." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah I read that." Um, so he, <laughs> um, but thankfully, I think he appreciates our enthusiasm and that we're doing this. So he's the lead, you know, PI on the human uh, side for Enlorum, and then my husband and I are, you know, doing the experiments. And so at the annual American Epilepsy Society meeting, they had, um, there's many genes have kind of their own gatherings related to epilepsy. And so there is an SCN8A gathering with families and clinicians and researchers and biotech companies. It was really, it was so awesome to have kind of every stakeholder within this community together. Um, and we got invited to present our work. And so it was um, our clinician and my husband and me, and it was, it was super, so it was very preliminary because obviously we just started, but just kind of showing what we were doing. And that was just really exciting and a big kind of accomplishment to be in this space and to have started this research and, um, you know, be moving forward. And yeah, just so yeah, we got to meet a bunch of other families that have been, you know, dealing with the same disorder, meeting all the researchers. Um, and yeah, so I'm just, you know, it's really exciting to be so in, involved. Um, you know, it helps me feel more in control of 
you know, the situation when I can't control my daughter's seizures or diagnosis or anything. And so here I'm actually, you know, contributing in the way that I, that I can. So um, it's been really rewarding uh, in that way. And, um, and yeah, I bring in also my, my cancer expertise, you know, because, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities between cancers and, and neurological disorders. And that's kind of something that I've been interested in for a while, given my background. And so I'm really kind of delving into that and, you know, um, drugs that are being used for cancers can, are being tried, tested out for certain neurological disorders and vice versa. Mutations and pathways that are found in cancers can also be found in, in epilepsy disorders. So there's actually, you know, a lot more similarity uh, than I expected. And so I'm kind of delving into that and taking advantage of my expertise and kind of carving out this new area for, for my lab and for my research. And it's been really exciting. Wow. That's, that's awesome. On the research side, I know you recently published a review about this niche, this overlap between cancer and um, neuroscience. Can you highlight a few uh, parts of that review for us, for people who are not familiar with this like super exciting new area? Cause I, I just think Again, uh, for my background, um, I studied um, neuroscience from a systems biology perspective in graduate school and looking at particular gene expression pathways that were changing in things like Huntington's disease or psychiatric illness. And that was something that came up a lot where a lot of these hits were you know, also related to cancer. Um, and there were folks at our institute on the TCGA project studying, you know, these cancer pathways. So it's like when you start to think about it from a translational perspective, um, you know, how do we go about uh, targeting these things or, or creating better therapeutics um, that, you know, create this like balanced cellular environment, uh, which I find really interesting. So I'd love to get your highlights of this new field. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Um, so, I mean, we know that in tumors, the local environment really drives progression. So, um, you know, the immune cells, the local resident cells, the extracellular matrix that provides support to our tissues. Um, but another component that's there are our nerves. And so obviously we have nerves everywhere in our body. And, and it wasn't just until about 10 years ago that there was one study uh, showing that nerves, these nerves in these tissues, initially in prostate cancer, can drive cancer progression as well. And so now in several peripheral organs, uh, you know, we know there are nerves present, but when tumors form, you know, sometimes you have more of the same nerves. Sometimes you have different nerves coming in. So there's more nerves when there's a tumor. So why, why does that happen? You know, why do the tumor cells make the nerves come in? Um, and we found that, you know, when there's more uh, nerves, the tumors tend to be more aggressive. And so how does that happen? You know, how do the nerves actually impact the tumor cells? So so that's, you know, a, a huge area. And then there's been work that's been done in the brain, obviously with cancers that form in the brain and interacting with the brain cells, but in the rest of the body as well, we have nerves. And so this is still a really new area. So we wrote a really nice review on kind of what we know, uh, what are the, the different ways to study this because, you know, merging cancer expertise and, and, and neuroscience expertise to get these, to build models with both of these, you know, it can be quite challenging because people come from different different sides. And so um, we were kind of summarizing where we're at in the field with that. Um, and then, yeah, we, there's also just 
um, so there's the nerves that are present and then there's the properties of tumor cells that make them nerve-like, like the genes they express or their electrical properties. And so, um, you know, I think because there's lots of drugs out there that target neurological processes, potentially those could be, you know, repurposed for, for cancer in, in different ways. And so, um, and maybe even, you know, um, uh, vice versa. So one of the drugs that my, my daughter's on is sodium channel blocker as, uh, looking up papers on it, and it's been shown in, in a mouse model to inhibit uh, breast cancer metastasis. So that's, you know, kind of interesting um, to to see these. So I think, you know, there's a lot more that we can learn, um, you know, from uh, looking at both of these different areas. Uh, so diff different way of looking at things to to learn more. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think it's so neat that, you know, your graduate school and postdoc work kind of led to you having this expertise in these two different areas and now, you know, really drilling into that and, and defining some of these new um, cellular models to study these things in the lab. It's really cool. Um, I want to get back to the, the drug development for SCN8. Um, you know, ASOs hold so much promise, I think, for um, treating a number of diseases. And I think um, I'm particularly passionate and excited about them for uh, neurologic disease, but of course there've been some challenges there too. Um, we've seen, you know, a couple phase three trials that were halted um, for Huntington's disease and uh, I believe Rett syndrome. And, um, you know, I think one of the questions is like, Will we be able to get these reagents into the brain? Will we have the coverage we need to see an effect? And, you know, will we do no harm? Which there was, of course, a recent, um, you know, trial uh, with two patients with epilepsy um, that had some serious adverse events. So I'm curious where your head is at with this field. And, um, you know, as, a mother and patient advocate, like, um, how hopeful are you, like, how close are you to uh, having a type of reagent that you think um, would be worthwhile to try? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still, I mean, I'm not an expert in the ASO field, but coming in from the outside and as a patient, I think there's still a lot we need to learn. I think with Enlorem, you know, we trust this is a company you know, they're working with Ionis that has been working uh, on this for many, many years. So they have lots of experience. They, you know, they were able to bring, you know, Spinraza for, for SMA, you know, to patients. And that's been working really well um, for, you know, the end of one, it's obviously different. And it's, you know, getting into the central nervous system, like you said, with all the caveats to get, you know, enough effects. And so they have started injecting their first patients in the fall. And so I think it'll be, you know, really interesting to see, um, you know, what they learn from that and, uh, you know, seeing if they can, uh, you know, have more effects. Um, I think there's also different approaches. So in terms of, for Margo, we're looking at an ASO that switches splicing and that doesn't, and not the RNAs H degrading ones. And I think switching splicing might have less side effects than, um, than degrading the RNA. So that might be a little bit safer in that sense, but you know, obviously that's why we're, you know, while we're really excited that Enlorem is, is developing this, um, we're also excited to be doing all these additional experiments in our mouse model, in our cells, to really, you know, really deeply understand, you know, the biology of these changes and the effects. 
And so I think, you know, we're, you know, want to make sure we take our time with really understanding what, what we're doing and, and having, you know, those, that extra knowledge, but at the end of the day, it's always a gamble. I mean, it's always, you know, you're taking a chance on a new treatment. Um, and I think, you know, we, we want to do as much as we can for, for the science to push it forward for, for the next kids and for the next, you know, uh, for the future to try and gain as much as we can while being safe, but still, you know, we, we have to try these things because if we don't try, then we won't, we won't learn. So, you know, I think, you know, obviously we're not at a point where we have something we're ready to inject. And so I hope that we'll be able to collect enough data and enough, um, you know, data that when that time comes that we'll feel comfortable doing that and based off of, you know, the other patients. Uh, but yeah, obviously it will be, it will be scary for sure. Um, but I feel like we have good team of people and, you know, people that we can talk to and that we can, you know, really get to a point where we feel comfortable. But I think we, yeah, we want to try new things forward because, you know, that's the solution that we need because drugs can only go so far, um, you know, with these ASOs, we can try and fix what's happening and not just kind of, you know, use drugs to stop the seizures. Drugs have so many side effects. Um, just recently, now we're dealing with a side effect from one drug and we can't go up on it because, you know, it's causing these other side effects even though it works well. And so that's really hard too. you know, we've been through 12 different drugs and, you know, it's, we need more, we need better treatments and, you know, this is a way forward and we want to do our, what we can to make that happen. Wow. Well, I, it just sounds like you have so many great resources and such a great network. I mean, and Lorem, as you said, a great resource for rare disease families out there. They're doing amazing work. Um, Ionis, of course, like groundbreaking uh, science, and they're just um, so laser focused on delivering these ASOs for a number of different diseases. Um, if you go on their website, their pipeline is so impressive and their, you know, time to clinic is really crazy, which what that means is they have a ton of really dedicated people just working around the clock on getting these things to patients. And it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah, I love, you know, as we wrap up here, if you have any insights you want to share for other um, mom scientists, other patient advocates, um, other people coming up in their careers. I mean, you have so much, you know, that you've shared already, um, but just any kind of shout outs or, um, places people can find you. Yeah, I think anywhere what's really helped me is finding, finding my community, finding people that are going through similar things, similar processes, similar experiences to share, to make you feel like you're not alone, to help you with your struggles and, and celebrate your successes. So whether that's, you know, as a postdoc, finding people that I love to work with and who were really fun, you know, scientists that I got to learn from and do cool science with and, and move on into our careers. As a junior PI starting my lab, we have this new PI Slack group, which I highly recommend all these junior faculty sharing their ups and downs and their successes. Um, and, um, you know, even if you're not in person at the same place, you know, interacting and, and um, you know, learning from others. And similarly, from the rare disease side, I've really embraced, um, 
you know, this, this journey that we're on and I've connected with so many rare moms and medical moms and uh, both here locally where we live and also on Instagram and in Facebook groups and just, you know, being able to talk to people um, who are going through what you're going through is, is everything. And it makes you just feel less alone and gives you, you know, the, the comfort and then the, you know, the confidence that, that you can tackle these, these different things. So I think finding that community for me, wherever I've been, has been so important, um, in, in helping me with the challenges and, and succeed. That's awesome. Yeah. We're all about finding your community on Lady Scientist podcast. I love hearing that there's a Slack channel for new PIs. That's amazing. I mean, it's, so important to reach out to your network and lean on others who are going through what you're going through. And I think you you said something at one point in the conversation about realizing that you could do it, um, like connecting with this other PI, this other professor, and him allowing you to realize that you could shift focus and, and study epilepsy in your lab. And I think those are the moments that like I want to give to other people, you know, through this show and allow them to just see, oh, I, I could do that. Like I could go after that. I could, you know, pursue a career in academia or I could study this, um, you know, disease that uh, we don't have all the answers for yet. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your career journey and your experience as a mom and as your experience as a patient advocate for your daughter. And I'm so hopeful like for, children out there with the SCN8 mutation, um, like so many great people are working on this. And um, I, I just feel very hopeful that like, you know, however long it takes um, down the road, there will be a, a treatment course and an answer um, for these patients. So thank you for all like the work that you've done and, and the work you continue to do in this space. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. That wraps up my interview with Dr. Madeline Odin. Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your insights with us. I learned so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Lady Scientist Podcast, please give us a subscribe, leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts, and I recommend you check out some of our other interviews. Um, I interview several female founders of different biotech companies, and I'll be doing some more interviews with other mom scientists like myself. I am excited to bring more of you on this uh, path of learning from other uh, moms and scientists out there. So thank you again for checking out Lady Scientist Podcast, and we'll see you next time.